everyone, this is Jake Moraldi. On this week's edition of the Modern War Institute podcast, we'll be talking to Staff Sergeant Ryan Pitts, Medal of Honor recipient at the Battle of Wanat. Because his story is so compelling, for the first part of this podcast, I'm going to get out of the way and just let him tell it. Toward the end, I'll jump back in and ask him how junior leaders can prepare themselves and their soldiers to handle a situation like he handled at Wanat. If you're listening to this on iTunes or Stitcher, I encourage you to go to the Modern War Council blog website at modernwarinstitute.org. We'll be posting additional information like maps and other things that can help you make sense of Death Sergeant Pitts' story. As always, take the time to rate us on iTunes and email us through the Modern War Institute website with comments or topics that you'd like to hear in the future. With that said, here's Death Sergeant Ryan Pitts with his story of the Battle of Wadat. This is the Modern War Institute Podcast. We were breaking down, we'd already broken down the Uranus mm-hmm. post, and we were breaking down Cop Bella. It was just too isolated, it, you know, airlocked, could only be reinforced by helicopter, only resupplied by helicopter. It was at the bottom of the valley. It was just, it was going to be bad. And so we broke that down, and we needed to have something to deny the enemy freedom of movement, uh, and the the incoming unit didn't have the same experience we did. I mean, who better than somebody that's been there for a while? Like, we know terrain, we know the weapon systems, we're cross-trained, we've been in fights. we got to set them up for success, and they were going to have less guys than we did. So that's what it was all about. And it's not that uncommon. Our platoon did the same exact thing on OEF-6. We spent our last six weeks out in the middle of nowhere Garden a location to set up a fob. Could be resupplied by ground okay. within indirect uh, artillery support from Blessing. But it was also, that was where the government headquarters was for that area. And we wanted, there was a police station there. It was be close to the people, be close to the government, reinforce them, support them, but still be close enough to our own guys far enough out to not, you know, kind of do everything we needed to do. Okay. And it was like three valleys coming together, one running north. I say three. I mean, one north-south running valley, the the Wagle, and then one coming off to the east. Uh, it was the village was nestled right up against this river that ran north-south with the Wagle, and it was kind of up in every direction. I mean, it was just up from where we were, and we tried to be in the center of the village. We were in like this large open field area that was near the bazaar and the mosque, and the hotel was kind of all surrounding it. I mean, you never love being down in the low ground, but it's it's one of those trades, right? We got to be able to reinforce it. We got to be able to support it. Um, so, you know, it was just we're going to hold this. Let's build something up mm-hmm. and, and go from there. Um, yeah, we were a mix out there. Uh, we had taken a tow missile truck from one of our sister companies, so that squad had come over to our our team, our company, our platoon, and we had sent a squad to where that truck came from to reinforce that um, that location. And we had our mortar section was with us. We had um, you know, our headquarters section. So when Bella broke down, our commander was up there with his headquarters element. After he flew back, he came up like the next day and came to Wanat. Um, we had Marine ETTs with the Afghan National Army platoon. We had some engineers. There was about 48 Americans on the ground, not all organic to our units. We were probably like three-quarters of our actual platoon mm-hmm. and then augmented with everybody else. Uh, we had the tow missile truck. Mm-hmm. We had 50 cals of Mark 19s mounted on the other up-armored Humvees. Uh, and then 
a mix of AT4s, laws, um, 203s, 240s, normal organic stuff to us. I, I think we still just had the the two guns, uh, the two 240s that were organic to our weapon squad. Yeah, we knew we needed an observation post. Um, the decision-making, what Lieutenant Brostrom was thinking about was, it's not where traditionally you would put, doctrinally, you would put an observation post, but he wanted it to have, to be able to reinforce it. We could have put it further out, but we didn't really have the supplies to really build strong fortifications. Uh, and so he was, we were willing to kind of sacrifice a little bit of security for reinforceability. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was going there cause I was a forward observer. We had the two gun teams, um, and then just augmented with some other guys. So we had nine guys up there, including myself. At first, let's build the main fighting positions, and then let's start thinking about ways to get even better. It was, let's never stop building. We never did, right? So we built walls, you know, on the rear side where we shouldn't, you know, we thought we were covered. We wouldn't have to worry about enemy fire coming from there. Good thing we did. It was just never stop improving. Um, we knew that we wanted the, that the way we were oriented, we wanted a 240 to the north and a 240 to the east because that was really with first squad to the south at the traffic control point, we could have an interlocking sector of fire with the 249 in the lower southern position with the TCP. We needed those heavy guns up east and north where we thought the enemy would really come from. Right? I think it was only like 100, 150 meters away. But it was far enough in the fight. Yeah. We had thought that when they were going to attack, we thought it would be big, Mm -hmm. just because the way they had massed and what had happened at Ranch House, what had happened on November 9th, what they were, I mean, the frequency of fights and their probing attacks at Bella were increasing, and they, you know, more firepower, and knew that they were trying to work on, they they couldn't quite crack that nut yet on how they were going to assault Bella and overrun it. Um, So we knew those guys, you know, it was just logical, they're going to come down. Um... It, it was very early on once the fight started that it was serious. That this wasn't just, we're going to attack you, it was, we're going to wipe you out. They had tried that with the way they almost overran Ranch House, what they did with um, November 9th, but they came in close. They had us surrounded. There was 150 to 200 of them. They RPGs and hand grenades. I mean, really it comes down to coming in close, volume of fire. I mean, it was just an endless stream of RPGs hitting every position. I mean, they took out the tow missile. When they blew up a truck that was static and it wasn't an IED, I mean, it was RP, It was the amount of RPGs they were shooting, it was the amount of casualties we took right off the bat, uh, and how hard we were having to fight back, that this wasn't, I mean, for lack of a better way to put it, it wasn't an average firefight. It, it initiated with a burst of machine gun fire from the north, and then 360 degrees RPGs. I mean, they threw everything. It was violence of action from them. Yeah, I mean, for a lot of them, they were trying to shoot, like, directly into the mortar pit from the other side of this wall. They had moved into the the village, and they were inside the mosque and other buildings right along the perimeter. Um, For us, yeah, I think they moved up relatively early on. Maybe they were staged, and as soon as it kicked off, I mean, I can't say for certain, but, you know, it wasn't very long in that one of the guys told me they were throwing hand grenades. So, that I mean, they've got to be within 15, 20 meters if they're throwing hand grenades. Immediately, I was wounded. 
Uh, Gobble was wounded. Stafford was wounded. Phillips was killed early on. Zwilling was killed early on. But the remaining guys, it, violence of action right back. Mm-hmm. Never stopped. Should have been unbelievably, it was disorienting. Dusted themselves off, stood up, returned fire. It immediately went, they knew what their tasks were, they knew what their sectors were, they knew what needed to be done, and they just did it. And these are, you know, granted, these are all guys. One of the guys, Bogar, it wasn't his first deployment. He was a senior specialist. The gun team, those guys had been there for over a year. They had done the train up before. So these are all guys that know at this point, you know, I know where I fit into this puzzle. I know what everybody's leaning on me to do, and I'm just going to do Nobody has to tell me to do it. And they just did it. And they did it for as long as they could. There wasn't time to mourn yet. I'm not sure the other guys. Nobody took time. It was just okay. It's I guess it's crude in the moment, but they're gone, and we need to do this, and um, that's what everybody did. And, it's, and you know, I remember it hit me back in the hospital. You know, once it was all said and done, and, you know, you're out of that mindset of it's fight, fight, fight. That now it's process. That it it kind of hit all of us. Yeah. Yeah, I. I got hit by shrapnel in the initial volley of rocket propelled grenades or hand grenades or some combination. Um, I took shrapnel to both legs, and I was kind of half thrown, half dove into a fighting position, and I was just totally disoriented. I, mean, I had my bell rung. I it was like I didn't know what to do because I couldn't figure out what was happening. It just I didn't understand. I couldn't process it because I couldn't move my legs. I was looking at my legs. There's stuff blowing up all over the place. Um, you know, I hear, you know, guys yelling and there's fire and I just uh, totally disoriented. And it was just shock when my legs, I couldn't move them at all, either one of them. And my left hand was a little messed up because I had taken shrapnel on my arm. Um, but it was, I guess I just reached a point. I could hear all the other guys fighting that, you know, I was able to collect my thoughts and be like, okay, what's the first thing I have to do? And I had taken shrapnel in my inner thigh, and with the training we got, I know that the major artery runs through there. I know you can bleed out in two minutes or less that let's just get a tourniquet on it. And I had too many wounds for us to have enough Curlex and Ace bandages up there to plug everything, and let's just put a tourniquet on it, and then we don't have to we'll worry about this later. Mm-hmm. And that was the biggest concern. And so I crawled to that southern fighting position. Bogar standing up, just firing back, mm-hmm. just returning fire. He stops looks at me, okay, you know, only time you really stop, what do you need? Hey, put a tourniquet on this leg, put my tourniquet on that leg for me, and he's like, you good? Turns around and goes right back to what he was doing. It wasn't like, hey, go back to fighting. It was, you know, the leadership's not so formal. And really, I mean, when I think back on it, like, those guys led me too. You know, when I decided to go return to the fight, I'm like, all these guys are fighting. You know, we all got to do our part here. I'd never been in a fight where um, guys had to fight wounded. And this was the first one. I never thought that that was something I'd have to do. Never thought it was something I'd be capable of. I, I'd seen, you know, there's like these legends and this, this history of the unit. That there's other guys that I'd known that had been wounded. They hit and they walked themselves to the bird. I'm talking like take a round in the chest and they walk to the aircraft. And you're like, how does this guy do that? Um, but never thought it would be me. And I just everybody's fighting around me. i got to pull my weight. And that's what everybody did. I'm not the only one that fought wounded. They're everywhere. I don't. I can't really pop up and pinpoint and work a fire mission 
I felt like what I needed to do was return fire. Like, we need to keep them from getting in here first. Um, and so we just fired targets. And um, it just kind of became, you know, what's the next thing I can do? What needs to be done right now? It's all fundamentals. You know, nothing was anything fancy. It was, you know, shoot a, shoot a machine gun, clear a malfunction, put it back into operation, shoot some more, you know, throw a hand grenade. This is how you do it, you know. Just really simple stuff. Yeah. Okay. Um. I mean, the guys, you know, it was incredible what they were doing. You know, I was just saying, like, nobody had to be told what to do. And I don't think that was any position. You know, guys on the guns and the trucks, they're really being targeted because, like I said, the tow trucks and heavy weapon systems and every single guy, even the tow missile truck crew, they stayed in the truck until it was on fire, and they had to get out. You know, all the other guys stayed on the heavy weapon systems until they were inoperable. And then, even then, I think they stayed up there and shot some of their own personal weapon systems. And I mean, the trucks were just pelted. It was like guys were jumping on hoods to load ammo because you know, you know, they couldn't quite get to the Mark 19s. Come sometimes a pain to try and load from inside the turret. Guys are jumping on the hood, and you know they're being targeted. They're going to try and shoot that guy, I and mean, then somehow they did it. You know, it's like trying to dodge raindrops getting out of your car, and these guys are doing stuff. You know, I probably within the first 10, 20 minutes that they were trying to trying to get in the wire. They were trying to come around that north side. I know uh, one enemy fighter tried to come in from the east, and McKegg had set off a claymore and um, had taken, the, taken that enemy. Um, you know, I think it was a... Uh, they would try, push him back. You know, when I think about it, I, I I think it's how hard the guys fought that kept them from coming in. Mm-hmm. You know, Brostrom eventually showed up with Hovader and Bogar and Rainey and Ayers and all these guys that fought to the death that I think, when I think about, like, why I made it when I was by myself and wounded is because those guys fought so hard mm-hmm. that the enemy was hesitant to come in there. That's what I think. I believe that. Well, when I first got back to the fight, and I'm... I'm shooting the machine gun, doing the same stuff everybody else is doing, and then Brostrom shows up, and he starts taking charge, and this is a huge relief to me because he's, you know, able-bodied, and he he can coordinate the fight, and um, I give up the gun because he needs it. Rainey gives me another weapon system. And, again, it's just, I can't even remember everything, what I, what I was doing is talking to Captain Meyer, trying to coordinate fires, trying to shoot this, that, and... It's just after a while, it seems quiet. There's not a lot of fire coming out. I don't want to yell out because if I am the only one, I don't want the enemy to know that. And so I crawl around and I look down, you know, down a terrace, and I can see bodies. I don't know who they are, but I know there are guys and they're dead. And I keep I crawl a little bit further in, and I look up to this position that we had to the east that we call the crow's nest, and nobody's moving in there, and I get to the southern position, and nobody's there. And um, it scares the hell out of me. I'm terrified because it's just me, and I'm not. I can't leave. I'm not in really any shape to put up any sort of real fight. Um, I didn't. I just was terrified of being captured. And the previous year, the previous October of 2007, yeah. they had tried to drag one of our guys off. Yeah. You know, who knows what they would have done at Ranch House if they had taken it. You know, my thing was I didn't want my. I don't want my family to see a video of me being executed. Um, nor did I want to be taken, and so I just. I'd rather die fighting. Before I kind of came to any of that, I called down to Captain Meyer and told him the situation. You know, everybody's either dead or gone. And he told me they couldn't send anybody. 
because they were in it down there. And understandable, that's the burden of command. He's going to make those tough decisions, and the team and the mission and carrying the battle is is bigger than any one person. You know, if we've taken all those casualties and and going um, going up there, and so I, you know, I understood it, and that's when I just I knew I was going to die, and you know, quickly when I just kind of accepted like my biggest fear was being taken is just okay i'm not gonna let that happen i'm gonna make sure that they have to kill me because i'm gonna fight them you know all the way and i just said to myself i want to kill three of them before they get me that was my goal is just not go quietly when i called down to captain meyer they could hear the enemy over my radio because they were so close they could hear their voices and from what I understand, Specialist Jacob Soans was in our third squad. He heard it. You know, all the positions heard it. And uh, Soans was just frantic, like, we got to get up there. We're going. We're going. And finally, you know, uh, not finally. This may have been a short exchange, but him and Sergeant Garcia made a run to first squad, to the traffic control point, and try and come up from the south. And they ran into Sergeant Samaru and Mike Denton, and the four of them make their way to the OP. And I'm just sitting there. I'm just waiting. I, that's all I could really do is just sit and wait for, you know, guys to come over to the sandbags and start shooting. And I can hear voices again. And then it's Americans. And I'm just, you know, I thought I was dead. And those guys showed up. And uh, they start treating me. Sones and Garcia are treating me. And Denton and Samaru are searching our guys' bodies for ammo because at this point in the battle we're running low. And um, you know, it was pretty amazing. I mean, Hovader was Denton's best friend. He searched his best friend's body for ammo, told him he loved him, and moved on to the next guy. And, um, you know, this kid did that and just kept going on with the fight. This is just amazing. They were treating me, and they were st- we were staying up there. I don't, I, you know, at that point we hadn't made any decision one way or the other, but they were trying to treat me first. And another volley of rocket-propelled grenades comes in and wounds everybody. Uh, Garcia is mortally wounded, and you know after that we collect ourselves in the southern section of the OP. And Sergeant Sam makes the call that we're gonna we gotta get out of there, and so we knock down the wall, and the sandbag wall, and our, we really get just on the other side of the wall, and we're sitting there when we start seeing guys start coming up, and the Apaches are on station at this point, and they're start you can anytime they're Apaches, I mean you feel the change in the battle, and. Um, I think our first platoon is just driving up there. They, they're coming up in trucks. I think, you know, I can hear them firing away. And uh, the guys start coming up to the OP, and they're just they're just pouring up there. Um, you know, that was a huge relief, seeing guys that I knew, you know, just one after another coming up the terraces to get us out of there. And a medevac helicopter comes in and lands right between us and the enemy up on the terraces a little bit, and medevac crews get off. You know, everybody's helping load. They load um, me and Samaru and Denton and Sones on there, and that was the end of the fight for me. So what do you think, if you could impart, and I know you've done it with cadets here today, if you could impart some sort sort of wisdom about how how to handle a fight like you experienced at at Wanat, what would you what advice would you give a new lieutenant or or a staff sergeant or a you know squad leader who is potentially going to be involved in something like that the preparation happens months years ahead of time you know the the wars are won in training and 
the hard part, and that's, that's where the leadership comes in, is instilling that discipline and making sure everybody takes it seriously and gets the most out of it that they can, making sure guys are cross-trained. I told the cadets about that today. I mean, you know, I, I knew how to shoot a machine gun because they made sure everybody did, you know, heavy weapon systems. Everybody knew, everybody in the unit knew how to stick an IV, do a needle chest decompression, treat a sucking chest wound, all that stuff. All the guys knew how to call for fire. I taught them how to do that. There was this reciprocal. Nobody held back any knowledge. You want everybody to be the best and know the most that they possibly can know. Because you never, it, all this planning goes right out the window as soon as that stuff happens. Um, trust is key is you know in those moments is we're almost on all our own little islands fighting back right the op was its own island each truck down at the vehicle patrol base even though they're all together they were really kind of isolated with the volume of fire and that you got to have that trusted i know that everybody over there that as long as they're drawing breath they're going to do everything that they can and i know they're going to do it well right um you know that that's uh that's important and a lot of the stuff just happens ahead of time it's always being focused. You know, it's easy to get caught up sometimes thinking about getting promoted or moving on and doing stuff. But if you just focus on the mission and take care of your people, like everything will take care of itself. And, you know, for me, guys, Garcia laid down his life to save mine. And Denton and Sam and Sones risked their lives just the same. Brostrom and Hovader made that mad dash from vehicle patrol base in front of enemy positions. Is that, you know, when you dedicate yourself to the unit, and you're, it's no longer about you, it's about the team, other people, any of the guys, anybody that's worse their salt is going to do the same. And when you need them and you're willing to go get them, they'll reciprocate for you, and that's what they did for me. That's why Garcia and all of them, that's why I'm here. It's not because anything I did. I'm here because of what everybody else did that day. Um, you know, I think I'm more of a uh, philosophical stance is that, you know, wars and battles and aren't won by people that get awards. They're won by all the people that do the little things that they never get recognized for. The guys that were loading ammo, treating casualties, and you know, we did it together as a team. You know, it's, I guess one of the things that you're not going to go out there and be a hero. Just go out there and do your job. Everybody's counting on you to do it, and everybody's going to do the same. And that's all it is. It's not just doing what you're supposed to do. You have to follow through. You know, if you say you're going to do something, you follow through on it. You know, it's it's almost like a predictability, right? I might not like every decision. The platoon sergeant and the platoon leader, but they're never going to surprise me. Something's not going to be out of character. You know, if they always put the guys first, they are always going to put the guys first. Um, it's time together. I mean, I, for me, it was unique uh, in that most of the team leaders in our platoon, we had done two tours together. We grew up together in the same platoon. We had been privates together, and we became sergeants together. We were close. We had been through other fights together. There was training. There was discipline. We became like a, like a family. But the Army is this interesting place when I describe it to some people where you can be a nice guy, but if you're not good at your job, you're going to be hated. And everybody took being good at their jobs very seriously. It's just a time thing. You can't build the trust overnight. I think it's you know probably even goes back to the guys that came before us in the unit, just building on this, you know, history of excellence and just trying to live up to everybody that came before you and carry that torch forward. You know, I I look back on it. I still I'll never be as good as the team leaders that came before me. You know, none of us will look at it, but we're, that doesn't keep you from trying. And you go out there and you do it every day and you move the needle forward and you prep the next guys to do that. Yeah. 
So I want to touch on the cross-training piece, too, because I learned in my 09 deployment as a platoon leader the value of, of that cross-training um, for roughly the same reason you're talking about, where, you know, guys get wounded or killed, or and in the moment everybody needs to know how to do everything. Um, where did that, where did the emphasis on cross-training come from? Was it a platoon leader, a platoon sergeant level, or was it something that you guys discovered was necessary based on, you know, having been in Afghanistan for roughly a year at that I point. think it's a top-down thing. You know, it was the it was just a cultural thing. You know, the the top leaders expected it at every level, and it just trickled down. And we just, uh, I mean, a lot of it was executed at the platoon level, right? So I'd give a class on call for fire. Somebody else would give a class on heavy weapon system. You know, here's how you break down the 50. Um, you know, the medical training. I, I That started, that, I mean, that was even before my first deployment. I mean, it wasn't even... Maybe they learned it when they went into Iraq. Um, maybe it was the mentality of, you know, everybody's a paratrooper first. Whatever you do is, is kind of secondary to that. Um, there's a lot of things and a lot of people. You see the extended team come together there, and it was actually incredible with Winnot to see, you know, Apaches coming in and even the trust between units. You know, we, we asked the Apaches to shoot within 5, 10 meters of friendly positions. These guys are putting their careers on the line, and, you know, they don't want to shoot friendlies, but they know what it's need to be done. They know that if we're asking for it, that it's real, and they did it, and they executed flawlessly, right? And I've talked to them. I invited the, the Apache pilots who were at my Medal of Honor ceremony. You know, they were part of the team that day. And, you know, this everybody's humble and, hey, you know, we're all just doing our part. Well, we couldn't do what we were doing without you. You know, and the medevac crews, and, and it – it really opened my eyes to see, like, that it is this extended team that we're all working together. Yeah. I mean, like I said before, this, you know, wars aren't won by people that get awards. It's by all the people that do everything that they don't get recognized for. And that day, was it was a team effort. That was every guy on the ground. I didn't give any more than anybody else. We all gave the same. And actually, nobody gave more than the guys that didn't come home. Those are the guys that are the real heroes. Um it was just uh, incredible to see what they were willing to do for us. So you ended up at Bagram, right? So you don't have a good feel for what happened after, um, you know, after the fight happened. What, I mean, what ended up being the final fate of the cop and the and the VPB that were supposed to end up being there? They ended up deciding not to. To establish the the outpost there, and, and uh, that that stung. You know, I wasn't happy about that, but I also think we need to make decisions about winning. And if that's no longer you know the initiative, that's not what we want to do. Then I'm okay with it because I didn't go there to lose; I went there to win, and that's all that matters. It, um, you know, it's, I think it's hard. It's been hard for you know to think that we lost nine guys. And then we didn't even end up staying. But they didn't give their lives for a piece of ground. They gave their lives for us. Have you have you had an, any uh, any interaction with families of guys that you've yeah. that were there? Yeah. What was that? What was that like? That's the hardest part, I think, is to you know look at these people and you just feel guilty. Like, why am I here? And your son or husband or father isn't. You know, it's not fair at all. Um, I know. I think we all kind of feel that guilt. I think it's probably the hardest one. You know, it's hard to. And they ask how you're doing, and 
it's you don't really want to talk about how you're happy because it's just it's not fair. Um, but wonderful people, you know, I think it's important that hope they know how much like we loved their loved ones. And I, I think I've heard some of that feedback from them from the Medal of Honor ceremony because we brought all the families in for that, all the guys that were there in the ground fight, and for um, you know Bogar's mom in particular. She spoke at the Army birthday a couple years ago, and she talked about how you know she learned that it was his other family, and he loved what he was doing, and everybody loved him. Do you still interact with them fairly often, the families of those guys? Not as much as I probably should. I'm just curious. I know, I know, guys. The guys that I've lost, yeah, it's it's a constant, constant struggle to make sure you're staying up with with those folks. And you do. You feel uh, guilt is probably the best word to describe. This hands down the hardest part. Yeah, one of the hardest parts. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's it. All right. All right, man. Thanks for having me, man. Yep. If you'd like to find additional research, op-eds, and other original ideas from the Modern War Institute, please visit the War Council blog at modernwarinstitute.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find new episodes of the Modern War Institute podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the respective participants and do not reflect the official position of the United States government. For the Modern War Institute, I'm Captain Jake Moraldi, and I hope you'll join us next time for more in-depth conversations on war, policy, and leadership.